It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You spoke the game, no matter what you say. The only metal, Welcome to My Life, My Music with the governor, Alan Hudson, where we're going to go behind the music that shaped the life of one of British football's greatest talents. How you doing, mate? I'm all right, mate. Yeah, I'm good. And I love that song because Tony Waddington did ask the Cockney Rebel to come up and see him and make him smile, and you did in the uh, uh, end of 1973, beginning of 1974. We've touched your career Hood at 50 with all your clubs and your England years. But a big part of Alan Hudson, the man, is the other stuff, the showbiz stuff, the music, and you've got some wonderful tales to tell. You gave in the working man's ballet, your autobiography, your last chapter to all that stuff. So that's where we're going to focus for the next two or three shows, Al. Um, so when did you when did you discover music? When did you get into music? What was the first record, for instance, that you bought? Well, I, I think uh, being brought up in the King's Road and as a young kid, we used to, I used to go to... It was like a ritual on a Saturday. I, I got involved socially very, uh, at a very early age and parties and things like that. And there was a party every Saturday night round. But they were all grown-ups. They weren't like kiddies parties. And it, it was all... Uh, um, it was uh, the, the music at the time, what was, you know, in the, in the top ten. But, but it was a it was a great mixture of what was in the top ten. And then as the evening wore on, it was all Sinatra and Bennett and Jack Jones and um, all those kind of play, all them Italian crooners, you know. And you are a, a massive uh, Frank Sinatra fan, getting to know you like I do. I would say that he's top of the pops for you, isn't he? Well, I think he's the old. Apart from me loving him yeah. and his voice, and I think everybody does uh, who that I come across. Uh, I, I mean, it's a great pub topic as well. Who was the great? Who's the greatest? You know, in any in any sport, in any in any walk of life. Uh, I think Frank. But I, when I see him at um, at the Royal Festival Hall in around about seventy one, seventy two, uh, with uh, Princess Grace and. Uh, I see the ultimate professional. I see a man that could, you know, uh, he was the one. And then I read all about him. I heard all about him. I've, everything I've ever seen about him told me he was the ultimate professional. And he would tell band leaders, you know, uh, what to do and how to do it. Where it's it's unthinkable that you could do that. You know, he really was. He had the voice. That would mean that they did call him the voice, didn't they? Uh, and at a young age, he had a, the most incredible voice, and and to go on five decades and still be making records like he did, and with the lifestyle as, as well, you know, um, his life, the life he lived was quite astonishing, really. 
because that's as much as the you know the, the artist and the song it's the lifestyle it's the edge because he he had that didn't he? he always had the connection to the mafia he, al- he always had that edge about old blue eyes yeah and, and and the weird the strangest strangest weirdest thing about it all was when my life nearly came to an end in 1997 i i come out the coma and i was in hospital and uh, I picked up the paper one day and Frank was in a coma while I was in a coma. So it was quite, it was quite eerie, you know, it was, um, and then all of a sudden he died that year. Uh, and I thought, I, I can remember laying there thinking to myself, you know, you've got to fight even harder now because, you know, they've taken Frank Sinatra away and you're still here. And I, you know, <laughs> it's a strange old life. I know he was a lot older than me, but, uh, to be, I was in a, I was in a, laying in a coma in the Royal London. He was laying in a coma in his mansion at home. It was a little bit different, but to be in a coma at the same time, you say, well, we've got something in common, which is a weird thing to do. But, you know, it's just the association was unbelievable, really. And Frank sung so many brilliant songs. It's very easy to pick um, my way or New York, New York, but um, you love one of the more obscure Frank Sinatra tracks, which in fact come from the musical Carousel, a Rogers and, and Hammersmith production, which is um, Soliquai. Well, funny enough, it's, it's like uh, if you listen to that and as, as we spoke uh, earlier, you know, and the Jerry Marsden song, You Never Walk Alone, he sang that as well from another movie. That's where that come from. Um, Frank sings that just in a totally different way and it, it's the most beautiful i mean when he when he puts his mind to a song and that this he brings a very best. you can give a song to anyone and you know it makes me laugh about my friend loves these pub singers and i say look you can't do this because they just destroy a good song but frank sinatra like a I'm looking at on my side now i'm looking at the Johan cruyff cover of Johan cruyff book is everything that's great about football and frank brings the best out of a song you know no one can do it like frank there's there's no there's no two ways about it you know he was the governor i wonder what he'll think of me i guess he'll call me the old man I guess he'll think I can lick every other fella's father Well, I can I bet that he turns out to be The spitting image of his dad But he'll have more common sense Than his puddin-headed father ever had I'll teach him to wrestle and dive through a wave When we go in the morning for our swim His mother can teach him the way to behave But she won't make a sissy out of him Not him Not my boy Not Bill My boy Bill, I will see that he's named after me I will 
My boy Bill, he'll be tall and as tough as a tree. Will Bill, like a tree, he'll grow with his head held high and his feet planted firm on the ground. And you won't see nobody dare to try to boss him or toss him around. No pot-bellied, baggy-eyed bully will boss him around. I don't give a damn what he does, as long as he does what he likes. He can sit on his tail or work on a rail with a hammer and hammer and spikes. He can ferry a boat on a river or pedal a pack on his back or work up and down the streets of a town with a whip and a horse and a hack. He can haul a scow along a canal, run a cow around a corral, or maybe bark for a carousel. Of course it takes talent to do that well. He might be champ of the heavyweights, or a fella that sells you glue, or president of the United States. That'd be all right, too. His mother would like that, but he wouldn't be president unless he wanted to be. Not Bill. My boy Bill, he'll be tall and as tough as a tree. Will Bill, like a tree, he'll grow with his head held high and his feet planted firm on the ground. And you won't see nobody dare to try to boss him or toss him around. No fat-bottomed, flabby-faced, pot-bellied, baggy-eyed, Bully will boss him around. And I'm damned if he'll marry his boss's daughter, a skinny-lipped virgin with blood like water, who give him a peck and call it a kiss, and look in his eyes through a lorgnette. Say... Why am I taking on like this? My kid ain't even been born yet. I can see him when he's 17 or so. And starting in to go with a girl. I can give him lots of pointers, very sound. On the way to get round any girl I can tell him Wait a minute Could it be? What the hell? What if he is a girl? You can have fun with a son, but you've got to be a father to a girl. She mightn't be so bad at that, a kid with ribbons in her hair, 
A kind of neat and petite little tintype of her mother What a My little girl, pink and white, as peaches and cream is she. My little girl is half again as bright as girls were meant to be. Dozens of boys pursue her. Many a likely lad does what he can to her from her faithful dad. She has a few pink and white young fellas of two and three. But my little girl gets hungry every night, and she comes home to me. I gotta get ready before she comes. Gotta make certain that she won't be dragged up in slums with a lot of bums like me. She's gotta be sheltered and fed and dressed in the best. That money can buy. I never knew how to get money, but I'll try. By God, I'll try. I'll go out and make it, or steal it, or take it, or die. And um, another gr- well group that you were really into, and I think everybody everybody was growing up. You must have. Um, I mean, you were born in 1950, 51 in yep. uh, in Chelsea. These lads come from uh, Liverpool, and I suppose 1962 was a big year for them when uh, when they had their first hit, "Love Me Do." But you're uh, you're a big Beatles fan as well, aren't you, Al? Ah, oh, massive. Yeah, I was. I I remember as a kid the. Uh, a very young kid, you know, uh, I would go from our prefab and my mum would walk me up to the records when there was record shops about on the corner in them days. And it would always, there'd be queues to get their first album, the, the album that had come out that day. And would always, I'd always treasure their, you know, get, getting it on the first day. And I mean, they were just something else. And I just, I was a great McCartney fan at that time, but as the years went on, I'd become a, a Lennon and a Harrison fan, uh, but they, they, they was they were again, you know, they when they broke up, you I mean they it, it was like it was like a little bit like our team is Stoke, you know, what we might have done 
had the roof not blew, blown off, you know, they were making songs at that stage, which weren't, was uh, it was never heard of. What they would have been making today, and I remember two lads come out, Tears for Fears, who tried to copy them, uh, and they were fantastic. But that, you know, there there could never be another, never be another Beatles, and and you think, you know. Uh, it's like having a football team again, you know, and, and you, they had a drummer. They didn't really need a drummer, you know. The, the thing with Lennon, who was always had them great one-liners about when they ask, you know, they ask about how good the Beatles were and they and they said to him, you know, is, is Ringo the greatest drummer in the world? And, uh, and John Lennon just turned around and said, look, mate, he said, Ringo Starr ain't even the best drummer in the Beatles. And uh, that was just something that just about summed them up, you know, because they were they were great all rounders, and and that is probably a true story. And again, they had an edge to them, didn't they? You, you know, when you'd see them in there uh, or on a, a chat show, I mean, whether it be Parkinson or the Ed Sullivan Show or or whatever chat show that that, that they were on at the time, you know, they would um, that set the presenter up. They'd do things that were completely different and off the cuff. And then they'd just all of a sudden just go into the song and you'd think, well... Yeah, they were off. I mean, basically, they were all, they were off the wall. They were off the wall and they were, they, um, they were like the mavericks of, you know, what, what they talk about in football. They were the mavericks. They, they just went along. They were just so full of themselves. They were so confident in their ability, so confident in their music, so confident in their writing. They wrote great songs. And really, you know, they were never really touched uh, until the Bee Gees come along and the Gib come along and, and, and just about overtook them. But, you know, they, they had retired, as I said, far too early. Now, the, um, the Beatles track that, that you've picked is uh, Eleanor Rigby. Why did you choose that song? Well, I think it's, it's so realistic. It's so... Uh, it, you know, if you go to if you go to a funeral, you know, and you you know, it's so morbid. And I don't, I try not to go these days because my friends go and they ask me to go, and I don't, don't like going unless it's someone very close to my heart. Uh, and and the words to it are just they make a lovely a, a lovely song out of a, a bad situation, you know, Father Mackenzie and all, all that. And it, it's uh, how someone can sit down and write a song about that is is and then put the thing with me i, I mean I, I i always say that i could write a song and i, I could be a good, good songwriter but how they put music to it and the music they put to it and you know the elton john with bernie talking thing you know how they put music to such beautiful uh, uh words is that the the lyrics are the fantastic eleanor rigby was is just something it's a very underrated song as well which i love about it you know i can't believe it it's i think it's the best song we've ever done up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from 
Father Mackenzie Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear No one comes near Look at him working Donning his socks in the night when there's nobody there What does he care? All the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? Died in the church and was buried along with her name Nobody came, Father Mackenzie Wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave No one was saved all alone Where do they all come from? All alone Where do they all belong? They were great individuals, you know. They got all, there's not many people in these groups and these groups today that could go solo and do it on their own and also do it together, you know, and be so good together. Did you ever meet any of the guys? Because Paul McCartney was a little bit of, of an Everton supporter, wasn't he? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I, I've, I've heard things about them. I, yeah. I wouldn't think they were very sporting, to tell you the truth. I, I, <laughs> It would be hard hard to think of, you know, of, of, I don't know um, if, you know, we always said at Chelsea, you know, if, if, if we were pop stars, you know, because they used to say we were the pop stars yeah. of football, uh, who we'd have been and, you know, you'd, you'd have liked to think who you'd have been in a certain group and, you know, it was all that. That was what's so great about the 60s and the 70s. It, it was a great connection between us footballers and, and, those those musicians it was just a fantastic time and that was what that's why we got that's why we got in so much trouble and there was so much you know you just could day sex and couldn't control us because it was it was just the greatest if you were to walk down the king's road in chelsea now you wouldn't believe that the the difference you know how it was in those days it was just electric you know and as a kid growing up you just had to be a part of it but the great thing about your your Chelsea team in, in particular, you were probably more popular than the pop stars, you know, with Charlie Cook and, and yourself and, and ours and, and the rest of the clan. You you looked like stars, didn't you? You you were you were the champagne club. David Attenborough was um, sorry, Richard Attenborough. He was one of the directors, yeah. and he used to bring a lot of um, celebrities to uh, to the bridge, didn't he? Raquel Welsh being one of them. Yeah, yeah, he brought her down to try and promote a film film of his with her and uh, use a club to do so. And uh, but in, um, I, I mean, when you wasn't playing on a Saturday and you go up if you was injured or suspended or whatever, and you go up into the long bar, you, you know, it was just like uh, walking into a, you know on a film set. Really, yeah. there were so many faces and the people, you know, that uh, I'm not going to try and uh, say that. Like they all come to see the football, although we had a, we had a really good side, but it was just a King's Road. It was just a fantastic place to be, and it was a great setting. I mean, you go to White Hart Lane at Tottenham, or 
or to you go to the Emirates these days and you're walking through back streets and it's not really the nicest place and you get to the ground and you, know, you can't wait for the game to start. But there it was all excitement from the from 12 o'clock onwards, you know, the faces and everything else. It, there was just so, so much going on. I mean, I, I can remember as a kid, just before I got in the team and Sean Connery walked in and, you know, before he, he took over James as, as James Bond, he must have, I think he just might just look like the part then. And, you know, I thought nothing of it because you just see so many of them all the time, you know. So, you know, and then you see Michael Caine there and then there was, it was just a, a house of big names who go there. And then, and they wanted to meet you more than you wanted to meet them. It was, it was quite astonishing. I'm surprised Oz never got a lead role in one of one of Dickie's films, <laughs> and I, I'm sure. I mean, you know, he he, he probably prompted uh, Dickie Attenborough, did he, or did he not? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the. I mean, I I, I knew the one thing about uh, Richard Attenborough is I, I remember his son. Um, came along and he was quite a nice boy and I, I got to know him and then one day he came along I little did I know he was married to Jane Seymour who was again in a Bond film and uh, I remember we finished the game one day and we went down the local and Jane came along with us and she was just unbelievable to and we walked in the pub and it was like the, the, half a dozen of the Chelsea players with uh, and Jane Seymour you know and it was just it was like uh, I suppose it, you wouldn't even get that in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, six six uh, sportsmen walking in a bar with one of the most famous actresses in the world. And uh, I got to know her pretty well. And, I mean, she was the most beautiful girl. You see how she got the part. Great actress. and But she she had no edge and she was comfortable in our in our company. And that, that was the way it was. You know, we was all like stars together, you know. But... Uh, she was on an absolute fortune, and we was on, you know, the minimum wage. So, it would, but it, it didn't matter to us in, in them days because, you know, it, times were so good. Which leads us into your next track. Um, when you walk in the room, and like when Jane Seymour walked in the room, every head would have turned because, as you said, she was the most, well, one of the most beautiful um, ladies on yes. the planet. And even yeah. even in her later years, still absolutely beautiful yeah stunning stunning yeah. stunning young lady yeah i mean it's like uh you know everything in life that's what i love about my music everything in life relates to a song you know yeah. and, and, and like you just mentioned there you know if you were and like there was the searches every time you walk in the room and it's like the carly simon song really that you know uh the, another song that was all about uh, an event that happened yeah. you know and uh, the, the, every every if someone mentions a song or if i'm doing some writing it a moment reminds me of a song and i i think it's uh and it was great because i love the searches and, and I, I one thing led to another with them and which i obviously will talk about
let's talk about it now then brother <laughs> <laughs> well i i uh, but we used to have a player we used to have a player at chelsea called barry lloyd and he was two years ahead of me he was the age of my brother's age and they used to knock about together they were both um apprentices then barry played a few times for the first team he looked like he was going to become a player then he went to fulham and then he went on to uh, Brighton, I think he managed Brighton, and uh, he lived in Hayes, which is out near London Airport. Airport, and uh, invited us to a, a party one night, and uh, it was Frank Allen's party actually, and because he knew I loved my music, and we went along, and Frank was there. Frank and I, and I got on well with Frank. Uh, he was the lead singer of the Searches at that time. He he took over from the, the great Mike Pender, and. Uh, and it was a night, it was, again, it was, you know, you, 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 was, you, was, you felt so comfortable because you, you'd already knew these stars and, and there was him and standing at the, uh, on the side there was Jason King, you know, Peter Wingard, who was a, a friend of his. And, it, and I remember my best friend, Leslie May, Leslie said to him, uh, can I ask you where you get your suits from? And obviously being Jason King, he looked immaculate and he said, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. And my, my friend uh, wasn't too pleased about it. But um, because we had our own tailor in Chelsea, which was far better, uh, a fellow called Major Haywood. Um, and I, I remember I remember in 1969, 70, paying £300 for a suit at Majors uh, when I was on about £30 a week. So... Uh, you know what would be what would we be wearing if had we earned today's money? Because again, the look, the culture, it was everything, wasn't it? It wasn't just the playing football; it was the music; it was everything else. And um, there's a, there's a link as well to uh, to the late and great Dusty Springfield through Frank Allen, isn't there? <laughs> well, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> Frank Frank used to keep his cards very close to his chest, and he. Um, um, he just said to me one day, um, how would you like to go out and take Dusty Springfield out for a night? So I said, well, what's all this about? So he says, yeah, he said she just fancies a night out and she says she fancies going out with someone, you know, similar to yourself. And I, I said, I, he said, I'll put your name up. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take her down my favourite restaurant in the King's Road, uh, which was Alexander and... Uh, it was a. It turned out it was one of the, it was one of those things that could have been life changing, but that never happened. And um, uh, I went down to the King. I went down the King's Road, and I said to my mother, "I said uh, there'll be a knock on the door about half past seven, and it would be Dusty Springfield." Not knowing that she would be chauffeur driven, and uh, I said, "We'll just send her down to so and so, so and so pub, and then I'll, 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 I'll take it from there." And uh, she never turned up. And uh, little did I know, I thought she hadn't turned up, but little did I know that a big Rolls Royce parked outside our, our prefab and a fella got out with his cap on and went to my front door of our little prefab and asked for me. And my mother sent him in the opposite direction because she didn't want me. She knew all about Dusty Springfield and she thought, again being protective to that to their son they thought it would be a step in the wrong direction in my career which uh, i wasn't very i wasn't very pleased with because i would love to have taken her out and and then frank told me afterwards he says you don't know what he's all about do you she said she's desperate to have a baby 
and I said I, I thought you would make you would have been the perfect partner for her. And uh, and I often wonder when I was writing, I think I might have wrote in the Working Men's Ballet that uh, I wonder how the kid might have turned out. Would he be a footballer? Would he have been a singer or with a background, you know, a tennis player, whatever, you know? Um, it's quite amazing what what how what really might have happened, you know? Where would it have, where it have led to? It's funny and and, and strange in uh, in the same way that. You know, if you turn left on a on a road in your life, or you turn right, you, your life changes so much, and 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 there are instances, I guess, like in a game of football. Al, you know, you get a penalty, you miss it, and you get beat. You get a penalty, you score it, and Absolutely. you win. And that's that's what life is. Life mirrors football. F- football mirrors life. It's a case. Well, it's been it's been my life. Yeah. It's been my life. Just when I thought, you know, you yeah. you've made it, something happens. You know, the, the Mile End Road is a, a perfect example, but. Yeah, I mean, it's just turning, turning a corner, and that's what's happening. Everything in life, with every, 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 every event that goes on in it, you know, one, one click of a key, and anything can happen. Yeah, and as one door closes, another one opens, and and again, vice versa, and. There for the grace well, of God, in my case, is when when one door opens, the other one slams you in the face. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so it's a little bit different. But, are... yeah, but that's why I'm very good at getting picking myself up and dusting myself down, really. And uh, it, it, again, it's uh, the thing with Dusty is Frank. Uh, I remember going out for lunch one day, and uh, I was with a friend of mine, and. And he said, I, I heard Frank Allen on the radio the other day. He was a surgeon. He said, I, you didn't tell me you knew him. I said, yeah, yeah. He, he said, uh, oh, he said he told a great story about Dusty Springfield. You should have taken Dusty Spring out, Springfield out and all that, and you bottled it. I said, what do you mean he said that? He said, oh, yeah, he went on national radio. I don't know how many listeners, it was a BBC radio. And uh, he went on and told the story, and I, I phoned him up, and I gave him a right dressing down so uh, it, it's amazing really um i'd like i'd like to have known the story that might have been told you know it were, you know instead of it, where it all went wrong who knows and also in your book i mean that was a we'll talk briefly about the uh, the working man's ballet but it was um iconic book it was a groundbreaking book because you know in in those days footballers had had ghost writers but you wrote it all in yourself didn't you al I did, yeah. I, I, I'm a great believer. Mm. I don't believe anyone that can 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 really capture the person like yourself. Um, and I didn't want anyone um, writing about me. Really, there was enough written about me, but the, which was untrue. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think every. I, I believe everyone. I've always said everyone's got a book of them, and uh, write it yourself. You know. Uh, I can't. I can't see why not. And it, it just so happens that it was at a time. I remember the opening of the book says that I was. I and I. I truly. Why I say to write the book, I was in Seattle and I'd been out all day with the boys. And I every night when I got home, no matter what time, I'd go in my bar and put Sinatra on and pour my favourite drink and sit there and reflect on how I got to Seattle. And you know, I'd. I'd left Arsenal and I'd I'd loved Arsenal, but you know that here I was, so many miles away from home, and I just looked out the window over the city, and uh, you know, and I thought it was my it was my thirtieth birthday, it was June twenty first, uh, eighty one, and I 
and I, uh, and that's when I, I said you got to start writing your life story now because the, the because I thought that that was where I was going to end up. I thought that was the end for me in this country and uh, how wrong you can be, you know. And again, with them doors closing, that door closed yeah. on your Seattle career where, yeah. where you, you were riding high, the team were riding high and and owners of football clubs changed and instead of yeah. decent ones coming in like football players have during their career, yeah. <laughs> you you were always followed by by disaster pretty much, yeah. wasn't you? But when when you think as well that that, that was in nineteen eighty one and I and I when I when Seattle got you know, it was so, so unjust as well. When when I left Seattle uh and I was heartbroken uh that was 1981. I didn't write the working map. I put that on the back burner till yeah. 1995. So that was a long, long time mm. um, to to put a book away. And I just forgot about it. And then one day I was out with a friend of mine and he said, look, I think you should get that get back on track with his book. And uh, he said, I'll help you with it. I said, well, I don't need no help writing it. But he said, well, no, you know, I'll keep you going kind of thing. And uh, I was kind of hit a, a new low and I've and that really by writing that it was it really gave me a lift and I, I thought it was I thought it was a really good book and I I mean Jeff Powell of the Daily Mail when he when he says it's a good book it's a good book uh and he, because he's one of the greatest journalists you know ever walked and uh he he introduced me to uh Robson Books and and we took it from there I, I would echo Jeff's uh, words because I think it's an absolutely fantastic book as well and, and you can tell that you wrote it because when you know you as a person and the way that you talk and with the game situations, it's almost as though you're on the pitch playing a game because it's so... It, it, it's so um, you, you talk about it in, in such a, a manner that um, the attention to detail is, is phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what you just said as well, Paul, is... Um, I remember I was out one day and uh, I did a book signing and on another book and these people come up to uh, several people come up to me and talking about the working man ballet say how much we love reading that and I said well, what did you like about it because well, I like a bit of feedback and uh, I said because we knew it was you yeah. you know you, we knew it was you that wrote it and you, you we knew it was you talking and we can relate to you whereas if it had been a ghostwriter that that wouldn't have happened. It would have been uh, that, that you know that is what I didn't. So I made the right choice there. Because again, it's when you're a ghostwriter, you you kind of writing it in a, in a third dimension, aren't you? As that third yeah. person, it's like with your Facebook and your Twitter accounts, which your Twitter is Alan Hudson underscore ten, and uh, your official uh, Facebook site as well, which you daily. Uh, blog with uh, with yeah. your views about various things, whether it be football, politics, etc., etc. And I often do uh, interact with people, but not on a on a one to one personal level because I'm I'm I can't do that. I'm I'm part of your team, and I take instructions from you to to help you uh, work your your social media. But um, people can always tell when it comes from Alan Hudson because it's that personal stamp and i can never give that personal stamp and neither can a ghost writer in a book only no you, you can't you can't well you can't do it about yeah. with anybody you know because he has to come from the heart he's got to come from the you know the gut feeling and everything else and no 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 man could it's like somebody telling you what you think about something yeah. or your 
or your ideas about something, you say, well, how do you know what I'm thinking? Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't know. So, you know, um, I, I think people that get people that write their books, I, I don't know. It, it's uh, why not do it yourself? I just don't go and work that out. Uh, I, I know a, cu a couple of my f people that once they read it, they asked me to. Uh, uh, they needed to write letters, uh, very personal letters. They asked if I would do it because, and I said, "What do you want me to do it for?" They said, "Well, you you know how to put things together." And I said, "But I wasn't educated. I I never I was hopeless at English at school and uh, this kind of stuff. I, so I suppose it's just being, you know, I, from that early age in Chelsea and being." Uh, brought up uh, around these people which I told you about with the music and uh, the, the young ladies and everything else it was being I suppose it's being streetwise uh, in in those times and something that couldn't happen today I mean there's people I see youngsters today and they're not just streetwise they you know they don't take it in uh, and plus the fact in Chelsea it's not too much to take in it's not like it's not it's not an ex I mean my my life around them times were exciting and there's not it Chelsea is not exciting at the moment now well we're still at Chelsea then uh, you did allude to earlier and you do allude to it in your books if Chelsea were a football team you would have been the faces what was it about the faces that that you loved in particular and how did you get that connection well, it was it was all. I remember being at school, and there was one kid who was Rolling Stones mad. I was Beatles mad, and and I couldn't understand why he loved the Rolling Stones, and you know, because I didn't think there was any comparison. Uh, but the face, then the faces. It was Stevie Marriott, wasn't it? And uh, our friend, our mutual friend John Hellier, which I'm delighted to know that he would he did the show with him and. Steve, I think it was Stevie Marriott that come along, and uh, you know he would have been perfect in in our team. You know, I always look at uh, when I look at these these stars and whatever, and I thought they they would have been a great addition to our team, whether they were good players or not. But they would have been a great for our social team and uh, everything that goes with it. You know, and Steve Marriott, having him come in every morning and before training and all that, and it would have been perfect addition. And and he and obviously he was his music was superb. It, you know, I've seen him on stage and it was fantastic. I think the thing with the small faces or just you know small faces, they they were all the same size. They <laughs> were about five foot six as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was a little bit like the Artful Dodger, wasn't he, Marriott? I think he'd have been a great left or right winger. I don't know what foot he used to kick the ball with, but you could actually see him playing football, couldn't you? Well, he, he, uh, I, I suppose it's a lot to do with passion, isn't yeah, it? You know, yeah. it's it's uh, that. And the passion and the energy and everything else, but that's the way it was in those days. In uh, those days, with musicians, you know. Um, but I think them more so. You know, uh, the Beatles were a little bit more laid back, and they, you know, they they could really, you know, the song "A Day in the Life" and stuff like that. They could really go from one one extreme to the other. But uh, Marriott was all about energy, wasn't he? He yeah. was, uh, you know, I would imagine him getting into so much trouble in our team. It was unbelievable. You know, Sexton would think, oh, no, no, I've got a, bought a right crackpot here, you know. Uh, but he would be, he would fit in perfectly. Imagine Marriott and George Best as well in that Chelsea team. We would have drove Dave Sexton over the edge. 
Oh yeah, well that uh, I think uh, something might have happened. Yeah, Dave, Dave might have you might have seen Dave hanging off Battersea Bridge with a rope <laughs> round his neck. I think something like that. It'd have been. It would have ended up uh, very sad. And then obviously when uh, when Steve left, he was replaced by uh, another footballer, R- Rod Stewart. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my nephew played over his house one day and. Uh, he had my name on his back, or they had their names on their shirts. And Rod Stewart looked him up and down, and my nephew Billy, who um, who was at Tottenham, he was there with the likes of Gascoigne at that time. Uh, and Billy just looked at him, and he, he, cause he, he can be a bit saucy, and he, he just said, "Yeah," he said, "Yeah, I am," and that was all, all he said to Rod Stewart. And uh, as much as say you'd like to be as good as us, you know, um, but. There you are. You know, he, he was a foul. Some some people, uh, I said it the other week about Robbie Williams, how I was with his father and, you know, I said, you, you, you're Robbie, don't know how lucky he was not making it. He, he could have been in Port Vale, on the fringe of Port Vale and been in their reserves. And yeah. because he failed playing football, he, he took up his other, what he was really good at. And, and what a magnificent artist, you know. And uh, but how going back to what we've just been talking about, had he made it, had Port Bower took him on their books, he, we, he would never have been seen, no. you know. And I, I do, I'm just a, a massive Robbie Williams fan. And why Maggie May? What, what makes that record stand out more than other faces or small faces records for you, Al? Well, I think it's uh, again, it's uh, it's um, the words, yep. Um, uh, you know, I think we have we all met a Maggie May along the way. You know, it's uh, one of those again. You know, everything about the words in it and the the way he puts it across. Um, I don't know if I'm I'm a fan of Rod Stewart or not, but I, I, um, but then all of a sudden he comes up with a, another knockout great song. You know, uh, but I'm, he wouldn't be one of my favourite people. Um, I just don't. I, I don't know. I, I, it'd be wrong for me to say, but it, um, to make that that will be a song that you know will never be, you know, never be equaled. I don't think by an individual. You know, it it it, it says everything about them times. Yeah. You know, everybody in the Kings Row at that time, and I suppose in the Mersey scene uh, down the cavern. You know, there was Maggie Mays everywhere, wasn't there? Yeah. And uh, how how they how they put the song together and how he did it and he's got that he's got that voice and he he's got that one off voice.
very unique. Yes. Again, not particularly yeah. my cup of tea, but fair play to uh, to Rod, a big football fan to boot as well, and uh, Celtic yeah. and Scotland. Although he was born in Essex, worked that one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that. Well, that just about says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, another group that were uh, born on the Isle of Man, lived in Manchester briefly, went off to Australia, and um, wrote one or two good songs. You could say was the uh, the Bee Gees. Another group that you're absolutely massively into. Uh well, it's uh, and I think the old I've I've got the the life story of the Bee Gees, and I I've watched it. I can watch it every night. Uh, I just love I just love their music and. Um, I remember being uh, at a couple of uh, unfortunate moments in Bermuda, with, uh, where 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 he used to live. You know, the fellow that got them going, and uh, he was over there. And I never got to meet him over there, but he was he was a man behind their second coming, really, with the Saturday Night Fever and all that. But I loved all their early all their early stuff, and um, I, I just think that Barry Gibb. No one's ever done what a pop star has done, like Barry Gibb, to to write these do songs with the likes of Barbara Streisand and Celine Dion, and you know the the Kenny Rogers song and all that. They were they, he was he just multi 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 talented, and uh, their music and I know you know the the song Odessa is quite it was that that was a song that. Um, made me freeze. It was I'd never heard nothing like it, Odessa. It was just unbelievable. It was a, and again, it, it's just it's a. I mean, <clears throat> when Frank Sinatra says something is the greatest love song of all time, uh, because he doesn't mer- mention the word love in it. Uh, it's the same as Odessa. It's the most beautiful love song without it being a you know mentioning love, and it's a. Uh, I suppose again, it, it, it was a sign. It was a time when I was going out with my first girlfriend, and every time I think of her, I think of Odessa, and uh, that, that's what music's all about. Music evokes such memories and such powerful memories as well. And um, it was, it was, well, it seems as though it was about a, a British ship that was lost in a Baltic Sea. Yep, yep, it was, uh, I mean, you get spellbound by it, you know, I, it, it, it was, it's something that um, I've never really looked into the history of the song, but how they come up with it, and, and it is an album, it's an album, but that song itself, it's, uh, and I, when I did the show uh, on the BBC a few weeks ago, I was walking through the, the the BBC build uh, outside and they have all these paving stones, a bit like Hollywood, you know, with the stars names on them and all that. And they had all these names on them. And, and uh, Gary had already asked me about my favorite songs and all that. And I, and there was a paving stone with Odessa on it. And it was, it just kind of made me freeze. I just stood there and looked at it for a little while. And I thought, how the hell did that get there? You know? And it, it's, so it must've been, I don't know. I don't know if they just put it there for me for the day and then moved it, but it was just something else. And that, that was, but you never, you never hear it played, do you? No.
cherub. I lost the ship in the Baltic Sea. I'm on an iceberg running free. Sitting, filing this book to the shape of a ship. Sailing my way back to your lips. One passing ship gave word that you had moved out of your old flat. You love the vicar more than words can say. Tell him to pray that I won't melt away.
Again, you know, another rare song, and that's that's what that's what I love because talking to people, um, you get an insight into their musical taste. And the great thing is, instead of playing an easy track to play, it would have been staying alive or anything from Saturday Night Fever. But I love the fact that you've gone for an early uh, BG song because Robin Gibb was vocals on that before Barry, and they had a bit of a, a breakup. Didn't they? Well, uh, he was. I mean, Robin Gibb was like like with the Beatles. McCartney had the voice at that time. Uh, Robin Gibb had the best voice in in the group, without a long shadow. You know, there is no absolutely no argument. You know, and uh, I remember having, you know, part of our family disagreement was uh, the Hollies. You know, it was all about Alan Clark and Graham Nash, who was the best out of them. You know, they were so they were so talented. Uh, uh, but Robin Gibb had the most beautiful, beautiful voice, and then all of a sudden it all swung round, and Barry took over, and it was uh, a different Bee Gees altogether. And uh, I suppose I, I think the big the big thing of the Beatles said it, and the Bee Gees said it that the the biggest influence was the Beach Boys. Uh, the harmonising of the Beach Boys was everything. You know that, that they were unbelievable, and that that is how they ended up so good them groups because they they used to work on the harmonizing and you know that relates to football it, it isn't football isn't all about being a one man team you might get a best player but it's all about harmonizing all all about working together and uh what you might be good at this and Charlie Cook might be good at this and I'll be good at that and Osgood would be good at that and that, that is why we you know, that's why we make a team. And pretty much why um, what the God bought you as a replacement for George Eastham to play with Jimmy Greenoff and you you pair were almost telepathic, although in those days at Stoke, you, you weren't particularly friendly and, and now you, you, you're best of pals. Well, that was, it, was, it was just a genius. It was basically the genius of what it is that, that could see that. And... Um, the same with the, you know, the same with the Bee Gees turning their life around, and uh, uh, with the other fella when he when he got them to do Saturday Night Fever, and he called him, he called him into New York, and they went in there, and they, they, one of the greatest greatest stories of um, a, a song I, I'd not touched on, but they he called them in, and he asked them to do twelve songs to do the album, and they they come in, and he, they only had eleven. And um, they said, well, you, this is no good. You've got to go and write me another one, but you've only got half hour. So they went out and they walked down and there was a um, an elevator and there was like, a, they sat on the stairs, an old elevator, like a, a, sh- a shaft there, you know. And they sang, they put together the New York mining disaster in about 20 minutes and put music to it. Now that for me is just something absolutely unheard of yeah you know you know you get these footballers they can train all week and they get, get so much money today they train all week i watched arsenal play at chelsea the other week and i see two players that are on 100 150 grand a week miss miss chance on a perfect pitch yeah. scoop the ball over the bar you know and uh, you know there's no genius in that but for the beaches to sit down and you know, and and the echo they had all all the sounds to it, and you know the song is just phenomenal. 
And they did it in 20 minutes. They walked back in his office and they just threw it on the table and they said, here's the last one. And it became a massive, massive hit. And uh, I can remember walking in the West End one day in one of those great big, big superstores, music stores, and, and they had it blasted out, the, you know, uh, New York mining disaster. And I thought, Christ, you know, who, who else could do this, you know? But again, I think Barry Rice, uh, Barry Rice, Barry Gibb. Um, yeah. I think he wrote three number ones in one afternoon. <laughs> he was that that prolific as a songwriter, and as you yeah. say, absolute genius. But but absolute quality yeah. as well. You know, it was uh, some of the songs that you know uh, <laughs> we won't go down the other. You know, I always when I they, I always compare people. I I say as well, it's like comparing Des O'Connor with Frank Sinatra, you know, and but give give they he didn't bring out a, a song unless it was top notch. Yeah. Well I I didn't think that we'd get through ten songs, Al, when me and you get talking about football and music. Yeah. Um so we're gonna have to cut this short. We're gonna do which which is nice because we're gonna do three in our series of my life, my music. So we're gonna go out on part one with um with the song from your Seattle years. So talk me through the logical song, because not only did you meet Supertramp, there's a twist of fate that when you woke up from your coma, you looked at this song in a different light, I'm guessing, and and it put sense to some of the madness that was surrounding you at the time. Yeah. um, I I, I was introduced to the... um, Super Tramp when they were just um, I don't think they were I think they were just uh, orchestral if that's a word and I, I so someone introduced me to them and, I, and then all of a sudden I got to Seattle and I see a big sign that they were playing over there and by then I had heard I'd heard uh, a lot of their music and they, they did their Breakfast in America tour and I thought well you know, I went up to, I got four tickets for me, Jimmy Gabriel, uh, my friend Tony Davis and uh, Harry Redknapp. And I took them along and I said, come on, what's these boys? And they, they told me after the show that if this if this album didn't sell, they were going to have to disband again, you know. Uh, and I said, I said, the only thing I did wrong, I should have bought shares in the album because it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable show. And uh, and I got to know them, and I met them again later on, and all because of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And then in 1997, you were you looked at the logical song probably in a, a different light, didn't you? And you know it was a, a bad year. You'd had the hit and run, and you just woke up from your coma. And and I suppose when you look at the words, you know it, it was so um, so profound. Yeah, yeah. I mean everything. Everything on that album um, sort of kind of come up in a in a different, you know, it was the same but so very different, so so far apart, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think it become one of the biggest selling albums of all time, and there were they, not even thinking that it, you know they thought they were going to disband. So how how incredible is that, you know? Um, yeah, and thankfully they didn't disband, 
proper um, two brothers that are going to have to disband now, you and I, and we're going to reconvene in uh, two or three weeks' time and do part two of My Life, My Music with the Governor, Alan Hudson. All right, mate. And by the way, I absolutely love the show that you've done with Gary Crowley on BBC Radio London. It was absolutely fantastic and... Uh, and, uh, and it is great talking about music, about football, about a common love that we've all got. And I'm guessing football players at times like to talk about other things rather than football. Because every time you meet someone, everybody wants to talk about football. And I suppose you want to talk about clothes or, or gigs or, or records or, or gardening or fishing or, or some other pastime that you, uh, that, that you love. Well, it's, uh, I don't think gardening, but, um, <laughs> but it's like, um, you know, the one of the greatest selling albums of all time. Again, Stevie Wonder, the song of the key of life, you know, it's all about music. Yeah. Uh, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine writing that first book without it all being half about football and half about music, because that's... that's uh, you know, they called it the food of love or whatever they call it, but you couldn't... I, I've seen a... <laughs> they wouldn't have made music if they wanted, you know, the silent movies and everything else. And I see a film one day um, they, where they took the music out of it and it was just... There would be no there would be no movies if it weren't for music, yeah. you know. And some of the greatest movies of all time have been musicals. You know, the people like Jimmy Cagney was a great actor, but... Then he done Yankee Doo Doo Dandy, and you see another side of him. You know, it's yeah. just a different, got a different meaning to movies. You know. Yeah. Right. We'll leave it there then, Al, and um, I'll speak to you. Uh, I'll speak to you in a day or two, and All right, mate. We'll reconvene, and we'll do part two. Uh, we've got some great music to get through over the next few episodes. If you can find them. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, pal. All right, mate. All the God best. Bless. Cheers, Al. Bye, mate. Bye, bye, bye. When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful A miracle, oh it was beautiful, magical And all the birds in the trees, they be singing so happily Oh joyfully, oh playfully, watching me But then they sent me away, teach me how to
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.